to our beautiful deep community, I want to assure you the deeper is going nowhere and the same incredible content will be released every week, but now through Arise. It is going to be less trauma heavy and more inspirational, uplifting, but it will still challenge and push you to grow. For all your deeper episodes, they are still available every fortnight. You can still get your deep hit with the deeper subscription. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 911 emergency, Osorio. Hi, someone just broke into my house and tried to rape me and cut my finger off. Okay, when did this happen? Now I'm bleeding a lot. Okay. How was it cut? It was a knife. He cut my head and cut my my left finger off. Welcome to the deep. I'm Zoe Marshall. In my early 20s, a lot of traumatic things happened. And ever since then, I have had this fascination with people and their stories. This is The Deep. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I work and live and recognise their continuing connection to land, water and community. I pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Home invasions one of the most terrifying experiences a human can endure. Attempted rape, being stabbed multiple times. This is the story of what Lee endured. Content warning, if you're suffering or triggered by the themes of this podcast, help services are listed in the show notes. Lee, welcome to the deep. Thank you, Zoe. It's so good to be here. I want to just jump right in because we have a lot to cover. Can you take me to the day of Feb 2018? What happened that changed your life? So February 23rd of 2018, I think it was a Thursday. It was a regular day for me. I think I got my hair cut was maybe the special thing that happened that day. And I went home, made dinner, went to bed. It was a normal night. And at about, I would guess probably 2.45 in the morning, I heard, I had, a, I have my dog who's I've had for a very long time. And then I had another dog with me that was a foster dog. And I was woken up to the two dogs barking crazily. They were barking really loud. And I thought maybe someone was in the yard, you know, a neighbor or something walking their dog very late. And so I got the dogs to be quiet. I just kind of peeked out my bedroom curtain, went out to the yard through the windows and I didn't see anything. So I got them to be quiet and I went back to bed. And then about 15 minutes later, I heard them barking again, barking really ferociously, feverishly, um, clearly upset. And this time it sounded different. Um, And I immediately, once I woke up, was frightened 
Um, so I sat up in bed and my cell phone was on an end, end table next to the bed and I picked it up and looked at the time and it was 3.07 a.m. And as I looked up back into my room from the phone, I caught in my kind of peripheral vision, set like a, a figure, just a silhouette of a figure. Oh my God. I know it's like a, you imagine these things when you're a little kid, it's ter- like you never think it's real. You know, in every single instance, it's not real. And that night I went through those emotions. I, I basically like, I had twinkle lights set up in my living room because it was February. So I still had lights up from Christmas just because I liked the light. And he was silhouetted by those twinkle lights. So I couldn't see his face. I just saw shadow come into the doorway and then go back out. In that moment, like, you know, you're probably a bit in fight or flight. Do you think that it could be a ghost or are you sure it's a person? You know what I thought it was? I I had had plans to go with an ex-boyfriend to an event that night, to some friend's music thing. And I thought that it was him trying to scare me because I had a hide a key outside my front door. And I thought, okay, it's three o'clock. It, it's feasible that he could have gone out and now he's over here and he thinks it's funny and he's going to try to scare me and I'm going to go out into the living room and he's going to be sitting on the couch was what I thought. Okay. But the little foster dog that I had, that was maybe like 12 pounds jumped up out of the bed and she really cautiously walked towards the doorway and she kind of peeked around to the right and then went like skidding back. So then my heart started beating because she knew my ex-boyfriend. Yeah. She would have run to him. Yeah. She would have been excited. She would have, you know, started. Oh my God, Lee, I just can't deal with this moment. I know. It's like, and these, I think the leading moments, because it's so relatable to all of us, are the scariest a bit. I have like a cold sweat. That's the one thing that still, to this day, haunts me a little bit, that shadowy figure that sometimes I'll walk through my apartment and see my shadow in a mirror or something at night. And it will give me that same. <gasps> oh my God. So tell us what, so the, the doggy s- comes back and freaks <laughs> out. Yeah. So she, she goes, it's got it scuffles back. Oh. And then I start thinking, what's, what's, should I be prepared? And I, I had a friend years ago, give me a hunting knife that I had in my underwear drawer that was near me. Mm. Um, and I thought about grabbing it, but I didn't know how to use it. I didn't know how to open it. It was like a switchblade. Yes. Shit. So I was like, I'm going to hurt myself more likely than anything trying to get it open. So I didn't even take my phone. I I was wearing little boxer shorts and like a cutoff t-shirt and I got up and I was barefoot. I remember And I just started slowly walking through my bedroom. And I don't remember if I was saying hello, hello, but I think I was. Um, And I was just walking. I walked into the doorway. I looked to the right and I didn't see anything. But now my heart is beating so fast because I can just feel, I remember I could feel energy 
in the in the space. You know, when you can just feel somebody's close to you, you know? And I started walking through the living room where the twinkle lights were and it was lightest in there. So I, I was like, okay, there's nobody in here. This, that's where the door was, the front door. Mm. So then I turned into the dining room. The dining room's darker. And I started, my heart started to beat faster because I was, it was darker in that room. And I know in the dining room, I started to say, hello, hello. And then I, once I got through the dining room, I got to the doorway of the kitchen. And that was where it really hit me, that feeling of like someone is close. And I walked into the kitchen, which was very dark. And I looked to the left and I immediately saw there was a man. He had himself pressed up against the, the wall of the kitchen, just at, at the inside of the doorway. And I quickly looked him up and down and I saw that he had a knife in his right hand and, and that it was one of my knives. It was a black blade with a black handle. And I recognized it from my set. And it, whenever I describe these moments, it always sounds like it was a long time. It was like a fraction of a second that I had to look at him. But I do remember in that moment thinking, I'm going to need to remember what he's wearing. So I took note. He has a red hat. He has a long face. He has a goatee. He's wearing a sweatshirt. He's wearing jeans. He has a knife in his hand. And that was it. That was all, all I could clock in that amount of time. And I started running backwards and screaming. I, I didn't turn around and run for the door. And sometimes I wonder why I didn't do that. But it was almost like I just wanted to put as much distance between me and him as possible. And I didn't want to take my eyes off of him or turn my back to him, if that makes sense. Mm-mm. So I just started running backwards and I started screaming like, help me, help me, help me. And I ran and I remember kind of launching myself over the coffee table in the living room. And there was a vase on the coffee table with white lilies in it. And I remember the the water splashing on the back of my legs. And then I kind of pushed myself up onto the couch and pressed my back against this big bay window that was in my living room. And he was running toward me the whole time. He was crouched low. He was running as fast as he could. And he caught up to me and jumped on the couch and took the knife, held it to my throat and said, shut the fuck up. You see, I have a knife, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, I will fucking kill you if you don't shut the fuck up. And I, I got very quiet. And then my tactics were... I remember thinking, make him think he can trust you. Oh my God, that's my tactic. If I've, you know. It's a smart one. I've thought of this scenario. I think so many, especially women, have thought of this. And I was like, I would seduce or I would get them to, like, whatever it was, befriend them, whatever. Yes. Oh my God, this is so fascinating to think in the moment you did the thing that we all plan to do. I just got chills. <laughs> like, because I, I've had, I've talked to so many women that, that say the same things. And I think it's a very smart strategy. I like genuinely, because they want you to be docile and you want them to be malleable. 
mm-hmm. you know, and, and if, because we're so small, he's, I think six, one or six, two, a big guy and I'm yeah. five, four. Yeah. So we, we have to be resourceful and we have yes. to be adaptable and cunning and cunning. Exactly. That's a great word. So I, I thought to myself, like, I'm, I'm great at, at being friendly and I'll make him think that I'm his friend yes. and I'll make him think he can trust me. And I remember thinking there was a homeless shelter that was across the freeway from me at this time. I lived in Santa Monica in California. I had had a few homeless folks get lost looking for this shelter and stop and and knock on the door and ask for directions, but they were always gracious. You know, I never felt afraid. Mm -hmm. Um, So I remember thinking maybe, maybe he's homeless. Maybe he's lost and he thinks he's confused yeah. And he thinks that this is the homeless shelter and he he's got scared. caught. Yeah. Yeah. And he just wants to get out. Yeah, yeah. exactly. This is a and lot of thought happening in, in split seconds. It's amazing. It's wild to me how our bodies work. You know, that's all I can chalk it up to is that how people say time, time slows down because your body is in such a, an activated state and you're taking in all of this information and computing and remembering all the things that you're computing at such a rapid rate. So then I started kind of just because I was close to him, I was like, okay, does he, does he smell like weed? And he did, he did smell like weed. I was like, does he seem like he's acting erratic? Like he's on amphetamines or, you know, cocaine or like he's hallucinating. And he didn't, he was speaking to me really clearly. Um, I, I smelled to see if his clothes smelled unwashed or if maybe he smelled like he was incontinent and he smelled faintly of detergent. And he, you know, so he, I was like, okay, so he, he's not confused about where he is was basically what I was thinking. Mm. And he started saying to me, um, he was asking me questions like, is there anyone else here? And I said, no. And he said, do you have a boyfriend? And I said, yes, which was a lie. And he said, where is he? And I said, he went out. And he said, at what time? And I said, 10, which all of that was a lie. Um, and he seemed pretty unfazed by that, which I now understand why. But at the time, it gave me hope that maybe he thinks there's someone coming back. Yes. And that was an, another tactic just to make him feel a little nervous. But it that did not seem to work with him. Mm. So he, and again, like he was, he was, his heart was clearly beating fast and he was like, his voice was shaking a little bit, like anticipatory nerves mm. almost, mm. but, but he wasn't afraid and he wasn't confused. Mm. And he told me to stand up and I had my hair up in a messy bun at the top of my head. And he stood up with me. And he grabbed my hair, like the ball of hair with his left hand and put his right arm around me to hold the knife to my throat. Yes, I understand the position. And he walked me toward my bedroom and he took me into my bedroom and he told me to turn the lights on. And I, the lights didn't turn on from the switch, only a fan turned on. So I turned that on. And just the fan turned on and I, he was saying, do you have any money? Where's the fucking money? 
And I kept saying, I don't have any money. I don't have any money. And then I remembered that I had some cash in the guest bedroom. So we walked to the guest bedroom. The door was closed. And he, he said, there's no one in here, is there? And I said, no. And he said, are you lying to me? Because if you're lying to me, I'll fucking kill you. And I said, I promise I'm not lying to you, you know, trying to be his friend. Um, I would never lie to you, I think I said. And we opened the door. I opened the door to the guest bedroom and walked in and walked to an end table. And there was, I think, $31 in cash in this end table. And I passed it back to him and he put it in his pocket. And then he walked me back out into the hallway and he said, okay, now what else do you have for me? And when he said that, that was the moment for me that my hope for what the situation was and my wish for what the situation was and my understanding of what the situation was changed. You know, when he asked that, it it made it... It was a turning point. It was. It was a turning point. Absolutely. That the way he said it, I knew what he meant. Did he mean sexual? Yes. Yes. Did you know that? Did you feel that? I I felt that, but did you feel that in that moment? I did. I did. He, it was just, it was his candor changed. Like it went from give me as much cash as I could get. And then it, it was like, he relaxed and he was like, okay, now what else do you have for me? And then I started to cry and he walked me back into my bedroom. It was dark in there still, but the fan was going. So it was cold. It was cold and dark. And he told me to put my hands up against the wall. Um, so I did. And it was, I turned and faced the wall and put my hands up and he still had the knife to my throat and he was standing behind me and he reached his left hand up under my shirt and started feeling my left breast and started making like moaning sounds like, Oh, Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, sexual sounds. And I, at this point I was sobbing just full, full sobbing, could not stop crying and kept saying over and over, I'm a nice person. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. I'm a nice person please, you don't have to do this. I'm a nice person. I just kept saying it over and over. Are you still scared that he's going to kill you? Or does that fear get overrun with rape? Or is it a combination? It's a combination for sure. The idea of being raped was terrifying, terrifying, especially, you know, like I had never seen this man we're at, no one knows that he's here. No one knows that I'm in a dangerous situation. You know, it's three o'clock in the morning. How long is he going to stay? Is he going to take me to another location? Yeah, there's so much. Because I've always wondered with predators in this situation, like he's getting aroused from touching your breasts and you're sobbing. I've, and I can imagine with serial killers and, and people, rapists, that their victims are generally screaming and crying. And I always wonder 
this is very basic, but how would you get an erection? You know, like I really wonder that. I wonder how you, uh, maybe that's a part of it. The screaming and the crying is a, is a, is a part of the pleasure. You can't see, but I'm nodding. I, I think you, one, you're the first person to ever ask me that. And I, I actually wrote about it in my victim impact statement. I, something I, I said, um, because that was the thing that stood out to me, um, was, I think what I said was snot and tears and crying so much that it gave him an erection. My helplessness made him turned on. There were many points throughout the night that I felt from him. And I, I know people say this about rape, that rape is less about sex than it is about power. Mm. And I got that feeling from him multiple times throughout the night that his goal was to, because he felt something about him felt empty and powerless. And I have empathy for him. I don't, I don't think he should be free to roam the streets or, or, you know, forgiven for what he's done legally. But he, he had this empty feeling and it seemed like in those moments where I was most helpless. He seemed like he felt most powerful. And part, part of that was being turned on. So take us back to this first element of sexual assault. He's touching my breast. I'm saying again and again and again, please don't do this. Please don't do this and crying. And he says again, shut the fuck up. And he really meant it. Like, shut the fuck up. Stop crying. So I stopped. At least stop making noise. And he told me to walk to the bed and I walked over to the bed. I got on the bed and he told, and I kind of curled up into a little ball, you know, like I had my arms close to my chest and my legs close. I just wanted to keep myself close, you know? And he said, stretch out your legs. And he had, he took the knife and had it again to my throat while I was on the bed. It, It never left my throat. He said, stretch out your legs. And I did. And he said, stretch out your arms and touch the headboard. And I did. And then he started to feel, he had his right hand holding the knife to my throat. And then with his left hand, he started to feel my vagina over my shorts, my boxer shorts I was wearing. And again, he started to make these like, ooh, ooh, moaning sexual sounds. And at that point I was silent. Um, And he, he then said, where are the fucking condoms? And I said, I don't have any. And he said, tell me where the fucking condoms are. And I said, I don't have any. And he told me to turn on my side. And while I was laying, again, this is a lot of thought happening while I'm laying in this position. I'm thinking about, I was thinking about all that. It sounds, it sounds odd to say out loud, but in the, maybe this would be helpful to someone else. I, when I was laying there, I was thinking about kind of what we already touched on that. I don't know this person. I don't know what he's capable of. And he's in a room without consequences Mm. and he has complete control over my body. I'd never lost complete control Mm. over my body before. Mm. And I started to imagine all the horrific things he, he would do and things I had never seen depicted in movies things I had never thought of myself. It was like my brain was sending me these alert messages saying, 
you don't know what he's capable of. He could do extraordinarily violent things to you. Mm. And most likely, if he's here going to rape you, he's going to kill you. That was that was at that point what I started to think. Why would he leave you alive? You've seen his face. He's going to kill you. And I started thinking, I don't have children, but I started thinking about if he raped me and I somehow survived, um, I started thinking about a daughter and I don't have a daughter yet. Um, but I started thinking about my daughter and imagined my daughter dancing at her wedding. And I, I, I remember thinking in that moment, I thought to myself, if he has sex with me, if he rapes me and I survive it, it's going to change my relationship to sex for the rest of my life. I'm going to pass that down to my daughters. It's going to change their relationship to sex for the rest of their life, their relationship to men, their relationship to their agency over their bodies. And I just remember seeing her dancing at her wedding. This is just so sad. The brain is like processing generational trauma in a, in a, in an instant. It's like, it's like future projections and the ability of your imagination. Like my imagination took me to a very scary place and then took me to a proposed future that I wanted. And the fact that you can articulate this to us now, it's extraordinary. Like it's extraordinary to have this much insight into these moments, truly. I've, I've heard that from a lot of survivors and from a lot of, um, from the police that worked on the case from a lot of, uh, military folks that, that that's, that's particularly what physiologically gave me the upper hand that night was that my body went into this mode. You know, there's so many different modes and I've been in modes before, like I've, I've fawned before I've frozen before in situations with men and unsafe situations. So I would have never thought in this one, this would come alive. Exactly. But it did. It did. And it saved my life. And what happens next? And so he, he told me to, to go to my side. And the last thing I thought was there was this the scene I remembered from the show Dexter, which I watched like a normal I love person. Dexter. Yeah. I love Dexter too. But I like, I didn't remember remembering this scene, but he, it's one of the early seasons. He's on a table and one of the other serial killers has him strapped to the table. And I, re- I do remember thinking what he did was brave. Um, that he said, a wolf in a trap will chew off its own leg to survive. Its survival instinct is that strong. And he turns the table over, knocks the table over, breaks his own arm and gets out of the strap to survive. And I remember thinking, if you fight back, you may lose your arms, but you'll, you'll still have a, a beating heart and you'll still be alive. And so I, in that moment, decided to fight. So he's, he's getting himself, he's getting his body up onto the bed as I'm turning to my side. And all these thoughts are going so fast and so slow. And I turn on my side and as he gets up, I can feel his erection on the back of my leg, which I think also made it feel viscerally real. And, and then he pulled the knife from my throat for a second as he was getting up on the bed, like pushing himself up. 
And in that moment, I screamed, somebody fucking help me, like as loud as I could. And in a second, in a flash, he was on top of me. He was straddled on top of me. We were like, our arms were flailing. I was hitting at him. He was hitting at me. I felt this feeling of, I described it as in court as like a bop, bop feeling, which I thought was him hitting me with the butt of the knife, but he was stabbing me in the head, in my forehead with the knife, which I found out later was a a carving knife from my set. I thought it was a little knife, but it was the biggest knife in the set. And he was, he stabbed me twice in the forehead, right at my hairline. And then I remember seeing white light, white light, white light. And I realized after this first white light, okay, he's punching you. And I remember thinking he may punch you a hundred times, but if you fall asleep, you die. So no matter if he punches you a hundred times, you have to stay awake. Oh my God. Yeah. So luckily he only punched me three times and he was punching me with his left. And I remember thinking at least he doesn't punch very hard, which I think it was because he was right hand dominant. And then also my adrenaline was out of control. Yes. Yes. So I opened my eyes and he was on top of me and I took my right hand and I punched at his zipper and twisted to try to punch him in the penis and try to like get the zipper to go against his skin. And in that time I had gotten my legs up underneath him and I kicked him up off of me. So he fell down in between my bed and the dresser and was facing the, the wall was facing me was facing like the bedroom wall. And I still have a tick it, which is that moment that I was first free and I sit up really fast. (gasps) Like, because it was the first time I had my body back. Yes, and yes, yes, yes. It was just like, I was, I was free of him. I was free to do anything. Do I want to run? What do I want to do? Yes. And I don't remember, I didn't feel any pain and I don't remember being stabbed, but I somehow knew that something was wrong with my hand. So I held up my left hand and my left hand had been severely injured by the knife and my ring finger and my pinky finger were just kind of hanging off of my hand. And then that was also kind of a gift, I think, because I've never been hurt that badly before. But when I saw my blood and when I saw how badly he had hurt me and I, it became real, you know, that yeah. He, he cares nothing for your safety or your body. Like your body yes. means nothing to him. Yes. Your fear means nothing to him. Yes. And I looked at my blood and I was holding my hand up and I looked down at him and he was looking at his hands, which I learned later when he stabbed me in the head, the knife, when it hit my skull, his hand slid down on it and he cut himself really badly. Okay. So he was looking down at his hand and I looked down at him from my bed and I start screaming at him. You cut my fucking fingers off. You cut my fucking fingers off. I'm going to fucking kill you. And I was fury, just an animal. I was pure fury at that point with him. Like I, I meant it. I was, going I'm so, to, but I'm like yeah. smiling here and I'm so fucking good. <laughs> I'm just like, you fucking kill him. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Cause fuck him. 
And honestly, the, the DA in court, she had never heard what was said. She had only heard that she had only read the detective's report of what happened. And the first time I testified, I said that and she started smiling. She was like, oh. <laughs> I'm sorry, you said what? <laughs> so I looked down at him and I start screaming at him. I'm going to, you cut my fucking fingers off. I'm going to fucking kill you. And instead of jumping between him and the door and running, I jumped down in between him and the back bedroom wall and started attacking him. And he, so I'm punching him with my right hand as hard as I can, just screaming, get the fuck out of my house. I'm going to fucking kill you. Get the fuck out of my house. I'm kicking him with my legs. He stands up again and pushes me back down. And then we start fighting again with the knife. Like I, he always was holding the knife, but I was, you know, punching at him, swatting at him, trying to kick him. You know, it was just like a flurry of hands. Mm. And he cut me then, I think, stabbed me three more times in my arms then. And then all of a sudden he turned and he started to run. And I remember thinking, okay, we're running now. He was running away from you? He ran away from me. (laughs) Away from me. Okay. Just checking. Yeah. Yep. And I was still in attack mode. So I remember thinking there's a pair of scissors that I was using to wrap Valentine's Day presents on like a table out in the hallway. So I I get up and start running after him and I'm still screaming at him, get the fuck out. And I went, I was looking for these scissors and they weren't there because I was imagining I was going to stab him in his kidneys. In this moment where it turns and you're like, I will fucking kill. Is there any part of you that's like, if I kill, I'm a killer and blah, 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 blah. This is who I am for the rest of my life. Or it's just like, I'm going to fucking kill this guy that's going to kill me. And we will see how this all pans out later in the day. You know, I've never talked about it, but there, there was a part of me that didn't want him to die. I think just, just humans, like we have this sanctity for each other's body, you know, in yeah. that that we don't want to hurt each other. And it's like this unspoken contract that we have with each other. And I remember, I do remember thinking that, that I I don't want to kill him. I don't want him to die, but I still, there was this part of me that was stronger. It was almost like a different voice that was like, kill him. It was red zone, kill him. Yes. And it was almost like my logical side and my primal side were competing in my primal side one. And I grabbed, so I grabbed this lamp. It was like a big glass bottom lamp and I've tried lifting it since, and I can barely get my hand around it, barely lift it up. So I was at huge levels of being able to do crazy things. So I grabbed this lamp and he runs to the front door and he's struggling with trying to open the front door. And I'm hitting him with this glass lamp. Get the fuck out of my house. Get the fuck out. Get the fuck out. I'm kicking him. He reaches back and knocks it, knocks that lamp out of my hand. So then there was another lamp by the door that had a heavy base. And I grabbed that lamp, pulled it out of the wall and was hitting him with the bottom of that lamp. Get the fuck out. And then finally he opened the the deadbolt, opened the door and ran off into the night. And I can't that feeling of him being out of my house 
is something that I'll never forget. Wow. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And then that adrenaline and that survival dexter instinct, like anyone else that has been stabbed in the skull, lost two fingers, physically attacked, I mean, would probably not be moving, I'm assuming at this point, but like the body is so incredible that what, like, do you still have a knowing of like 911, I've yes. got to like stop the bleeding, I've got to take care of, like, did you bolt the deadlock back after him? Did Like what were the steps? Absolutely. I So I almost in that order, it was I locked the door behind him. I remember thinking, it seems like he's con- he was confused about getting out of the door. So I don't think he came in the door. So I went back to my room. I grabbed my cell phone. But I, as I turned back into the living room, I do remember like my whole body was shaking, but not like not like shivering when you're cold. It was like I was rocking back and forth. Yes, like at my looking at my hands, they had like a radius of a foot was how much they were shaking. Yes. And there, I could see blood. There was a blood trail through my living room with my footprints in it. And I went into my back into my bedroom, grabbed the cell phone, went into the bathroom because that was the only room with a lock on it because I was afraid he'd be able to get back in whatever way he came in. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Went in there, locked the door. And I remember looking in the mirror for the first time. I, I still didn't know then that my hair or that my head was cut and I looked in the mirror and all I saw was red. And yeah. I, I took my finger and wiped and then I could see red and two eyeballs. And that scared me a lot. I, I was afraid I was going to lose too much, so much blood. Mm. And my hair was cut from where he had stabbed me. So I, I knew then that he had stabbed me there. Um, but so I called 911, they transferred me to the fire station and then they transferred me back and maybe four minutes passed, but then the police knocked on the door and it was like, boom, 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 um, police. And I said to the 911 operator, the pol- someone says the police are here because I was afraid maybe it was him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Smart, me, you so know? smart, smart, smart. Yes. And she said, no, it's the police. And then I hung up <laughs> like, in the 911 call. I'm like, okay, bye. And I hang up and I walked out there and I just remember there were three police officers. The closest one to me gave it, gave me this look of shock. And I, I knew that I looked bad. And, and then the other one ran off and they, they put me in an ambulance and they took me to the ER. And 
I have the 911 calls now because I, I asked the city to give me all the evidence because I don't know why I want them, but I, I do. You kind of need to reclaim some of this back. Exactly that. Exactly that. Like it's, it's my, it was my life moment, it, it, good or bad. It shouldn't be sitting in a library somewhere and not be accessible to me. Leah has generously agreed to share the recording of her 911 call. Here it is. 911 emergency, that's for you. Hi, someone just broke into my house and tried to rape me and cut my finger off. Okay, when did this happen? Now I'm bleeding a lot. Okay. How was it cut? It was a knife. He cut my head and cut my, my left finger off. Okay. Which way did the person go? What was that? I don't know. He locked the door. Okay. Okay, hold on, okay? Listen to me. We're getting help on the way. What I'm going to do is transfer you to fire so we can help you with the blood, okay? Okay. What's going on there? A guy broke in. He tried to rape me and I fought and he cut my finger off and cut me once. So you have a cut on your finger? He cut my right, my left ring finger off and I have a gas in my arm and two cuts on my head. How old are you? 30 to 32. How's your breathing? I'm just really scared. So, ma'am, Our blood. Did you say someone cut your finger? You cut it off. It's so it's totally off. It's kind of hanging. Okay, where's the person that did this? He ran away. He ran away. Yeah, I lost the Okay, ma'am, hold on one moment. Don't hang up, okay? We're on the way. Do you have anything to control the bleeding with? A clean cloth? Yeah, I have a cloth. Okay, don't remove it. If it gets soaked, just add additional. Hold on, okay? Okay. Hello? Hello? Okay, what's your name? Me. Okay. Was the other lady able to help you? She talked to me and asked me a question. Was she able to help you with your your hand? A little bit, yeah. Okay, good. So I want you to try to remember what he looked like. Do you re, was he your friend or do you know him? No, he doesn't. Okay, do you remember if he was white, black, Hispanic? He was black. He was about six two, six three. He was thin. He had a thin, narrow face. He had a goatee. He was wearing a hat and a, a sweatshirt. Do you remember what color hat? I think it was kind of reddish. Okay, what about the sweatshirt? The sweatshirt was dark, but I don't know what color. Do I have any writing on it? Someone said the police are here. They are. Okay, I'm coming. I'm coming. At what point do you feel pain? Never, never. That was, that was another thing that before when he had the knife to my throat and I have a little scar on my throat from where he was holding it because he was cutting the skin. Yeah. And 
I was so afraid of being cut by the knife because I imagined it would feel like a paper cut times 5 million. Yeah. You know, like very slicey and hot. And my adrenaline took care of that 1000%. I felt I had no understanding that I was stabbed in all these other places. And I felt nothing, nothing at yes. all. Even once I got to the hospital, like until I went into surgery and came out of surgery and went off of the meds, then I felt the pain. <laughs> then I felt a lot of pain, but yeah, that night your, my body saved me. And if I had felt all of those cuts, I'm sure I would have gone into a panic. I'm sure I wouldn't have felt so, you know, forward moving. I would have been trying to assess my body and see if I'm okay. Yeah. But I felt none of it. I want to just go to like, who the fuck is this guy? How did they find him? And then who is he? That's a, that's another part to the story that came later. So he, he was arrested the Monday after the attack. So this was all Thursday night, early Friday morning. And the police, he left his, in when we were fighting on the floor in my bedroom, he left his cell phone, he <gasps> left his credit card, he left Dickhead. his Metro pass. Oh know, my God. Stupid. <laughs> I love you so much. Oh my God. It's like, what a novice. What I a mean, one. Don't <laughs> like, your shit. Take your shit. <laughs> Now you're scared of a four foot chick, you know? Like, exactly. Oh my God. Exactly. Like tucked and run. But he left his blood, obviously, a bunch of his blood from mm -hmm. his hand. He mm -hmm. also, I, I found out much later, he had, I think he had accidentally stabbed himself in the leg while he was trying to run away. This um, sounds like a first offense. Like he sounds sloppy. He sounds sloppy, but so he got arrested. And then maybe that was in February in maybe July of that year, I got a call from the detective and he was asking me some very strange questions. And I asked him what happened, what's going on. And he said, we got some new information. Someone wrote in a letter, a seven page letter to the DA's office. Someone who the man who attacked me, his name is Rashad. Someone who Rashad is in, contact with regularly and who is close to him wrote in a letter saying that he needs to be put away for a long time. And I found out then I always wondered what was in that letter and they wouldn't tell me. So then the court case happened in 2020 and it wrapped, it was finalized in 2021, January of 2021. And I finally got to read that letter and in it, he admits to, or he had admitted to this person that he had done this before um, in Arizona. He told this person that he had been watching me for quite a long time. And he said that he went there with the intention to rape me. So there's this puzzle that I still don't know what it means that he had lived, the police told me he had lived in Surprise, Arizona, a city in Arizona, a small town. I had visited there in 2011 with an ex-boyfriend. His family lived there. They had moved from Wisconsin, which is where both he and I were from. So it's a very small town in Arizona. We had driven there from LA. It was the first year we lived in LA. We went there for Thanksgiving and I think a baptism. And 
that was the only time I was ever in Surprise, Arizona. He lived there in 2011 and then moved to Los Angeles in 2012. So the police didn't look into if that was a coincidence. They didn't look into, they kind of looked into if they could find that other woman that he said he did it to, but they couldn't find enough evidence. Um, so there's just kind of this murky. And who's the person writing the letter? It's someone that he knew very well and okay. spent a lot of time with. But he admitted a rape prior. Brent and was bragging. Was, was bragging. bragging and it. then told this person that he just did this to you. Yep, exactly. And he also but got, but got injured and everything that it fucked up or. Exactly. And he okay. also admitted in phone calls to his, I think he was calling his dad from prison or from jail and was saying similar things. Never said that he had done it before, mm-hmm. but was saying like, I dropped my phone. She fought back. She, she punched or she, I punched her and then she fought back. Like, he was kind of saying things in his phone calls that were to the tune of she ruined my plan a little bit. If he had been watching you for how long are we talking? That to me is where there's still so much mystery and what scares me the most. I think that if he had, if we had had some crossover in this small town in Arizona in 2011, he would have been 18 years old at that time. And at the time of the attack, he was 25. So if he had been tracking me or watching me for, for seven long, years, for seven years, if, if that's the case, I have such a hard time understanding why then, why not sooner? Why watch someone for that long? But I just don't know. I, and this person who said that he, admitted to watching me for a long time. That's all I know. They, they never said how long they never said since when. And then my next question is how did you not see him? Had you never, ever, ever seen his face before that day? Never, ever, ever, never, never re- remember seeing his face. Before yeah. Right. That day. Okay. So nothing stood out. Nothing stood out. And so he gets pulled in because of a few uh, circumstantial pieces of evidence, right? And the process happens between the attack and the court case. How long? That was a surprise to to me and my family was how long it took. The attack happened in February of 2018. I I drove multiple times to the DA's office to fight and advocate for myself. They were talking about plea deals, maybe giving him 14 years. I remember that was something that was on the table at one point. And they kept saying it was to spare me from having to testify. And I kept saying to the, te- to the detective and the DA, I am ready. I will do anything. He has now said that he's done this to another woman and to me, you know, like. This isn't going to stop. Exactly. But he is an unsafe person. I just know he's not a safe person. Mm-hmm. So. I kept telling them, don't, don't give him a plea deal on my, for me. That's not for me. That's for another reason. So -hmm. it took a lot of fighting on my part and advocating on my part. And then we finally were set to go to trial in March of 2020, March 18th of 2020, which I think was when the day that lockdown. Oh yes. 
So it got postponed. But this is now over 19. That's two years. Yeah. Two years. And then it did happen. The, the, the trial finally did happen in October of 2020. So then it was two and a half years. And he is held in remand during that period, which is in jail. Yeah. The court case happens. You get to testify. You get to have your moment. Mm-hmm. You get to look him in the eye. Well. No. We had done a bunch of preliminary hearings before that 2020, March 2020 date. And he, when I first walked into the court and he was there, I was with my mom and my best friend. And he started yelling things at me like, that's not her. That's not Caroline. Facebook has a conspiracy and Motorola is involved. Like he just started saying all these crazy things. And he kept getting taken out, taken out, taken out. He kept doing that. He had, I think, four psychological evaluations to assess his ability, you know, whether or not he was able to stand trial. And he was deemed competent in all four um, competency hearings or competency evaluations, which take about 30 days. And when it finally came the time for the trial, he refused to leave his cell. So they would forcibly extricate him with an order from the judge, which would mean to, you know, the guards would go in and pull him out, put him on the bus, bring him in, make him come in. But when he'd arrive, he'd yell out, he'd yell things at me like, take your shirt off, show us your scars. She's lying. Let us see. She's not. So he was getting himself thrown out. Yep. So he'd keep getting thrown out. And at one point they, I think they started bringing him in in the morning before the jury even came in and told him you like, again, every day you have another chance to be here. And he would say he didn't want to be there. And he, then they'd try to put the trial on in his cell and he would say he didn't want it, want to listen to it. So he absented himself from the trial. That's just so, that's so weak. Thank you. Thank you. Like I wanted to be able to face him. You know, it's scary to face him because the position where they put the victim victim in the defense, defense, you know, who's being defended. Like I'm, you're literally right 10 feet away from him. Yeah. Yeah. But you needed, like, I could definitely feel how you would have needed to punctuate this moment with like the, I fucking got you. Look at you now. You know, you haven't broken me. All of those moments, you know, and then that's frustrating. It was, I think, because also, like, I had such a curiosity about this person. Yes. I wanted to see how he moved. I wanted to see how he spoke. Yes. You know, I, I don't know what that is. I just... I was endlessly wanting to assess this, who, who he was. Can I ask you something? This has just mm-hmm. come up for me is there's no disrespect attached to this, but was there something special about you to him? Did you have something that no one else has that made it you, you know? That's something that I've, been afraid of and I think has become part of my lasting 
trauma that I worry about, you know, you know, when you're feeling your best and you can turn on your internal light a little bit, like you just walk into the room and you feel like you're shining. Mm. I'm so afraid that I was kind to him or was shiny to him for whatever reason that now I'm really battling and it's changed over time. But at this time in my recovery, I'm really battling feeling safe, being dressed up or. Yeah. You want to be invisible in a way. Invisible. Yeah. Everywhere I go, I'll think about like showing my arms and I'll, I'll say, no, like put on a sweatshirt. I'll think about like doing my hair and I'll say, no, put it in a ponytail. It's like, I just, I'm scared of someone seeing something in me that's interesting or valuable. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's my, my brain trying to protect my body. You know, my brain is like, yeah, but you shouldn't have to have that. You know, that's unfair. That's so unfair that that is a process that you now need to move through is that fucker, you know? Okay. So tell me what did he get? What was the sentence? There were seven charges. I think the ones, there were two that carried a life sentence. One with one of them was um, burglary with intent to commit rape. Uh, And then the other was um, aggravated mayhem, which I learned mayhem, which sounds like a very sinister and odd word for a a law <laughs> or like a, but it also a sounds sentence. really concise like i would say that's pretty that's pretty on point right that it it basically means that you injure someone with intent to the point that they're now disabled because my my left hand can never be fully recovered mm-hmm. um so he was charged with seven counts he was found guilty on all counts except for the aggravated mayhem. They reduced that to a lesser charge. So it was just regular mayhem, Um, regular mayhem. Um, But he was sentenced to life in prison with three years for prior offenses. This is the thing that's interesting. Life in prison sometimes doesn't mean life in prison till you die. Right. What does that mean for him? It means to my understanding, the number that, that I heard is that it means about 28 years and then he'll be eligible for parole. That doesn't feel long. No. And the thing to me is just like, I imagining him walking down the street with any woman present, even, you know, I, I feel kind of bad saying this, but even his family members at the sentencing said, he's not safe. Like he, like, we don't want him to be in prison forever. We want him to get the help that he needs but he's not safe. Mm. And he, um, if he gets out when he's 60, he's still an able-bodied person. Yes. You know? Yes. Because how old was he at the offense? 25. How old were you at the offense? 32, which I think also played in my favor. I think if I was in my early 20s or something, that would have ended very differently, you know? And so... Yeah, late 60s is not. So then there's parole, but you can fight it. You can fight the parole. You can go back and do this all over again. Mm -hmm. And we all know that the justice system lacks rehabilitation success. 
Unfortunately. That's Unfortunately. Okay. So I want to now go to the levels of trauma that you need to recover from. Obviously there's the physical, even the being molested element, even the, um, someone in the home, you know, like coming mm-hmm. through your door, taking your knife, stabbing you with your knife. So many yes. nuances, taking the $31, all of these nuances, ruining your bedspread, ruining your top, ruining your hair, ruining your fingers, ruining your body, ruining your skull. Like every single element I'm sure has a layer of recovery. Yes. What is this process like for you? Because we're only talking four years ago. Like that's not long. That is not long. What has this had to take for you to be able to sleep alone, not in your mum's bed, like which, or a parent's <laughs> bed or, or with a friend? Do you know what I mean? Like I would not be. Yeah. yeah. How, how has this been? I, well, first of all, thank you for reflecting all of that, that, that those things would have, meaning going forward that because they do i so first the first layer of of dealing with everything was physical like the physicality of it so i yeah. had multiple surgeries i was in a cast i was on a way too much medication that i found out about later mm. um i was on a ton of pain medication all of a sudden it was gone like oxy Um, Mm. bad like opioids and I went to the doctor and I was shaking and crying in pain and he said I want you to try to do it without pain medication and Mm. he gave me his phone number and said if you can't do it call me but it was that pain the pain of my hand and my nerves is was something that's something I'll never forget that like that was excruciating that's a ticket to drug addiction too, right? Like having 100%. that, if you had a different kind of constitution that is, we all know can turn into like a fentanyl abuse or whatever mm-hmm. it is. So there's another level of, okay, do I have to suffer this pain and not become, you know, <laughs> have a crutch, have a crutch to these drugs? Just the fact that it was all or nothing. The fact that it was choose addictive opiates that you could you know, I've had family members and friends' lives ruined by by those drugs. So I was terrified. Like the choice is either be on these drugs or be in immense pain and take Tylenol. Like to me, that was shocking that there was no in between. And I also want to touch on your family getting that call, rushing to your side, your friends, like... That was actually my podcast that I did, which was really just looking back on it, like a verbal, like I just needed to get all these things out. Yeah, it was like a journal. We'll put that all in the show notes for the people that want to oh, see thank you. your podcast and your Instagram. And there's very graphic moments yes. in all of that. And it was my first time doing a podcast. So have patience with me because I edited it and it's probably not A plus work, but I did my best. But so, yeah, I interviewed my mom and my best friend, my two best friends um, that were around for the attack and asked them that moment that they heard or that they found out in my mom's story, I think is the hardest for me to listen to. And she, Mm. 
you know, just thinking about her, we have, we're very, very close. And she got a call. I remember being in the ER and there were probably 15 doctors around me. And I was talking to some nurses that were near my head. And there was a social worker that asked for my mom's or asked for a contact number. And I gave her my mom's phone number and she left the room and they were cutting off my clothes and they were doing all of these things. I talk about in my podcast, they stick two fingers up your anus to check for a spinal injury. It's very invasive. Mm. Um, and you're just out naked basically with all these people. It's just mm. after it, And I've talked to nurses about it. The nurses from that night actually shared my podcast with the ER nurses or that part of it, just to say like, this is what it's like from someone else from their perspective. Mm. But this social worker came running back with the phone and she held the phone to my ear and I could hear my mom's voice. And she said, are you okay? And I said, I'm okay. And she said, I love you. And I said, I love you too. And then the social worker went right back out the door. So she told my mom that I had been attacked and that I was in stable condition and that Mm -hmm. I was going to be okay, but that she needed to come to Los Angeles. So my mom had to wait, I think like six hours to get on a flight. And then by the time she got to LA, I was out of surgery, but then she, she stayed with her husband um, and they took care of me for about a month. Mm -hmm. Um, And I tried going back to my old apartment and I I stayed up all night. I was hypervigilant. I was imagining different scenarios. I was coming up with ways to protect my family. And it was, Never again. No, 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 and no. <laughs> that's what I just talking. can't even believe you like went back there. I would have been. It's it's a strange thing. We got robbed once in New oh, Zealand, did. and this um not at knife point. We I wasn't home, but um they had been watching yeah. because it was when I was walking my dog, and I got back and the door was kicked in and um no. stuff was taken and and my underpant drawer had been gone through and all my clothes were trashed and I from that day never went back to that house and nothing no. happened to me like it happened to you and I, I when you just said I went back there I can't I cannot like you well, tried to you... go to sleep <laughs> oh well, my that's god a, I, yeah. everyone around me was saying this is a terrible idea and I don't know what it was about me that I was thinking that 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 I would be fine I think Mm. I kind of went through it with that mentality all the way through like oh don't worry I can do it it's fine and then things would not be fine no once you feel like your most personal and private space is is vulnerable and accessible to anyone then it doesn't become a safe space anymore it it stops being a safe space Mm. you know like I I now live in an apartment that I've lived in since the attack. It was the first place I like permanent residence I found. Is it a security one where you have to get buzzed in? Super secure. Yeah, that would be me. I was, yep. I was on the main floor with like ground Mm -hmm. floor with like windows. And that's how he had gotten in. He had sliced the screen and broken the security latch of one Mm -hmm. of my windows to get in. But now the apartment I'm in is up on the third floor. There's, like a couple that have two big Dobermans down on the first floor. <laughs> there's like in the back, there's no way anyone can climb. But I mean, it took a long time mm. to find a place that was like impenetrable. Yeah. And, and what then happens with 
your work, going out at night, walking from the car to the house, um, boyfriends, dating. I think for about the first month and a half, I was kind of crazed on adrenaline and also all of the attention. You know, mm-hmm. I like, mm-hmm. I'm someone who, who loves a surprise party. So having all of the attention of everyone I've ever met after the attack, if I'm being honest, like in such a greedy little kid way felt amazing. You know, it like loved, supported, all love. Yeah. Yes. Like Portion, everyone I've ever met. Nurtured. Yeah. Yes. Like I, I've described it before as like, it was like a, you could feel it. Like there was a net that was created by this love. Yeah. And, and I'm not religious, but I've told people that if I understood what God was, it would be that feeling oh. of being held by, by, by love so that you can't fall yeah, by the people wow. that love you. Mm-hmm. And I, I was held by that. And of course, as time goes on, people have to go back to work. People have to go home. People have to move on with their lives. And I struggled a lot with that. I struggled. I felt like I was flying high the first month and a half, first two months. And then as the mm-hmm. onion started to peel or the layers started to go back on the onion and everyone else's life kind of went back to normal. And, and I had been ripped from my apartment that I didn't plan on leaving. I had ripped from my body and now it's changed and ripped from my reality. I luckily was working from home and freelancing as a graphic designer, but I couldn't use my left hand to design anything. So I was out of work. I was spending, you know, incredible amounts of money on an Airbnb and yeah, trying yeah. to find a place to stay. And it just started to wear on me a lot to the point where I, I've never experienced an eating disorder before until this attack, but I, I stopped at about two months. I, I started really like restricting my food. It's a control thing. And I've heard this Absolutely. a lot. Yeah. I've heard mm-hmm. this a lot. It's not about the food. It's about the control. A hundred percent. It was like uh, my whole life is out of control. And this is the one thing that I have mastery over. And I also wanted to be really small and I wanted to shrink and I wanted to be invisible. And I started to even when like, I, then I found this apartment but I started to, in the months following, really fall into despair because you mentioned to boyfriends, what happens with boyfriends. So I had a relationship that had ended. It was like a five-year relationship that we had grown up together, went to high school together. Um, and we had broken up about three months before my attack. Mm-hmm. And we were still speaking and we were still in each other's lives. Um, and he was in the hospital, but he... Mm-hmm after the hospital and after my parents started to go home, he started to want more space because he wanted to move on. And I was in such a tailspin and felt like I had nothing familiar and no, you know, like no comfort. Of course. Go, of you course. know, can't go home. I can't, I look in the mirror and I look different. Where's home now? Like your body doesn't feel like home. Your home isn't home. There's nothing. Exactly. I get right. that. And everywhere is unsafe. So I like, I wanted someone, he's really big. So I was like, I want someone who's big to protect me and be with all the time and be in the house. And he wanted to move on. And that was very, very hard for me at that 
time to, to process. Yeah. Yes. And so I was just, I started, I was diagnosed with PTSD and then with OCD because I would just loop and loop and loop. And I would say like, I can't find him. Where did he go? Meeting my, my ex-boyfriend because I was just trying like, where did he go? It was basically like my old life. Where did my old life go? It's so funny though, isn't it? That the trauma finds a way of um, attaching itself into ways. Um, So it, it, it's funny. It's like functional, right? Cause you can still mm-hmm. live with that loop. It's, yep. it's crazy making and it's OCD and things like that, but you can still function. It's like, it the protects other, you. yeah, it mm-hmm. does. It's kind of like a crutch in a way, you know, a habit, yes. and, an addiction. So then the trauma can kind of like mull away in the background quietly versus like take over your whole life and then become, a, a drug addict or suicidal or whatever. And it's yes. really funny because we get, we have these themes arrive in the deep a lot where a gang rape has happened or, or a, a oh, childhood wow. abuse has happened or something. And as soon as they get to an age where they can access drugs, they do because it allows the trauma to do that. It's thing in the background versus eat them and kill them. And yes. I love hearing this from you because it's in a different format this way of like, obsessing on this ex which you really didn't want before this happened right but right. you want to you want to uh, attach to this old he life signified my old life of, yep. yeah this this exactly. time time prior to trauma it's like for me so fascinating to see the brain find ways to survive absolutely and that like that's so you must learn so much from hearing stories from so many people and so many different, you know, at at different ages, how it affects Mm -hmm. people and different, you know, like under different circumstances, under different socioeconomic circumstances, you know, like whether they stay in a continued state, a prolonged state, you know, it, it is just interesting the primal ways that our bodies will try to protect us Mm -hmm. and our brains. And they're not taking into account any nuance, like, like well-being or, you know, like enjoyed time. It's just taking into account survived time. Survive, survive. So tell me now, because I want to get to present day. Mm-hmm. Between that time, you know, the post few months and now, what has been the greatest healer for your trauma? Apart from time, love, cocooning, therapy, for you personally, is it doing your work on the podcast? Is it sharing your victim impact statement online? Is it sharing on social media? Like what is it for you that you find healing? I think that that's a great question. And I think it's three things in total. I think one is exercise. I like, I did fall into addiction after the attack. I was drinking every day, drinking to blackout and exercise to me became the thing that took the place of that. So I, I don't exercise to a point of addiction, but the way that exercise makes me feel yeah, is an antidote. I totally resonate. And I think a lot of people would. Yeah. Yeah. Just being active, being in the sun, exercising at the most simple level, I'd say that's one. Two, I think learning to reframe. There was, there was a point and maybe like six months after the attack where I was really deep at the bottom of, of my well, and I was fully in my despair and self-pity. And I started 
to look at things in a reframed way about mm-hmm. what, you know, I kept saying, it's not fair. It's not fair. This wasn't my plan. You know, that's what I kept thinking. Mm-hmm. And I started really thinking about what, what are you owed? What part of you thinks that you were owed mm-hmm. your plan? Mm-hmm. What's mm-hmm. the expectation that life gives wow. you yeah. all of these things without, a, without fighting for them? Yeah. You know, Yes. Without having to try, without having to push, you know, without obstacles. Yeah. You, know, you can still have all of those things, but this is an obstacle that you're going to have to get through or sink, continue to sink. The last thing I think is, is what you were touching on with telling the story, because that, that was, I started undertaking that after the trial was over because the trial was my singular focus. Yes. And once the trial was done and he was sentenced, I had a couple months where I was just feeling kind of floaty and just dealing, I guess, and processing. And then I knew I wanted to tell my story. So I started learning the software, started mapping out what I wanted to do, what I wanted it to be, started building the logo. You know, As a graphic designer, that's where I go. And I learned how to do it. And I interviewed my mom. I interviewed my best friend. Amazing. I interviewed another friend who was my best friend and then had kind of stepped back and mm. got to heal that relationship through that wow. experience and understand his point of view better. Um, but I think stepping back and getting all of the evidence from the police, telling the story from start to finish and then also having other people have their voices corroborating the things that I was saying. Yeah. So healing. It's so healing because we don't all get that, that, that corroboration of, and I felt, I realized a lot of what I was doing was just ruminating on, was it my fault? All these different layers of different things that happened, were they my fault? Did I do it wrong? Did I heal wrong? Was I selfish? You know, I had all these layers of guilt from the time after the attack and putting it into this objective storytelling and not fully objective, but with evident, with evidential support, I guess I should say, it helped me to kind of go up a thousand feet and see, okay, what happened to me is unbelievable. It's like lightning striking someone attacking you in your home that way and then surviving yes. attacking you, you yes. in that way. It's unbelievable. It's, it's un- incredible. And it also, what I went through afterward, I was able to give myself a lot more forgiveness and a lot more grace and forgive the people around me and give them a lot more grace and understanding in being able to tell the story that way. And I've recommended it to, you know, unfortunately we all know so many women that have gone through traumas of their own. And and, um, I think, you know, I'm sure you especially know that when you are public about your story, of trauma a lot of people come and share they want to talk to you yes <laughs> yeah. people that's, want to talk. Another, that's another kettle of fish yes and i like i'm fine with being one of the keepers of stories you know like yeah. i there are other women who i know hate that but but i think you i resonate very much with you that that you feel strong enough that you can shoulder 
and I, I'm curious too about like, do you have like a, a process after someone shares a story to like shed that skin yeah. and like have a normal day? <laughs> yeah, it's a it's sometimes it's a lot. Thing. It is a lot, and I think that um, uh, you know, and my advice to you and anyone listening is, if you are holding the stories of others, is to firstly protect yourself before you open yourself to the story so when you move out of that you can kind of shake it off like a duck out of water yeah but I think you also get used to it and I think there's just something so beautiful and unifying about knowing that people have um, this incredible amount of resilience and they're my people and I feel like they're your people the ones with the grit and the the shadow and the uh, all of the stuff like they're they're the, they're, that's the company I keep and that's the work that I love to do. And I feel like that is definitely you and the work that you like to do. But I want to ask a final question, which I feel I've never felt this way asking it before. It has a different weight asking you today this question. But who are you when no one's watching? Hmm. When no one's watching, I think I'm a helper. I think I'm a leader. I think I'm generous and kind and I want I want to have impact desperately. I want my story to be worth I want it to be worth something good. I also know I'm not fully my story. I'm also funny. I'm also silly i'm also i like you know to dress in pretty clothes i also am vain i also you know like have my makeup rituals you know i like to cook i'm all these other things and i think it's such an interesting question because i think once you walk out the door you start to put on all these layers and especially that's what i'm working on with myself right now is when i walk out the door i'm i'm making myself small and I want to really work on letting letting myself be in my full self you know Mm. you are so incredible you are so lovable you likewise (laughs) oh you really it has just been the what an absolute privilege for me to be able to hear this from you like the way in which you have been able to share with such eloquence and razor sharp memory is like it's 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 astounding (laughs) it really is you are you are so wonderful and I just thank you from everyone today that is listening thank you so much for being on the deep Thank you so much for having me. And I, I just want to say to you and reflect that back to you that I know we talked about it in, in this conversation, but this is important. And like you said, there's this, there's this other level of connection and humanity that comes when we get to hear these really, to some people it's scary, to some people it's off-putting, to some people it's too much, but to us it's where we find deep, deep connection. And, and I, I just want to say thank you so much for having me. And it's it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. And thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Deep. 
If it's left you with any burning questions for me or our guests, please hit us up by direct message on Instagram at What's the Deep. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everybody. It is Zoe here. Change is coming to the deep. I want to welcome you to Arise. It's uplifting, it's quirky, it's curious, it's all about the mindset and self-discovery to be more helpful and of service. During 16 of the Deep, you'll hear some of these episodes and I'd love to hear what you think of them over on our Instagram at What's the Deep.